to this line as we explore chapter 64 of Isaiah this morning. But first, let me ask, have you ever taken a pottery class? Anyone? I took a ceramics class when I was in high school, so I have some experience behind the potter's wheel. Not much, but a little. I think of that ceramics class every time I come across this metaphor in the Bible. We are the clay. God is the potter. There are two reasons I enrolled in high school ceramics class, neither of which arose from any desire to make pottery. (laughs) Reason number one, my best friends were taking the class. Reason number two, I was told it was an easy A. Apparently, all you had to do was try and you get an A. It's a good thing, otherwise I would have failed. (laughs) I'll be the first to admit I'm not very good at making things with my hands. I tried hard behind the pottery wheel to shape something beautiful, and I got an A for effort, but I wouldn't have gotten that A otherwise. For some reason, I could never shape the pot the way I wanted to. My fingers were unsteady. My attitude was anxious. Eventually, I resigned myself to making pots that simply didn't fall apart. That was my standard for success. As long as it would stay together, then I'd call it good. (laughs) That's how I earned an A for four semesters of ceramics class. At the end of each semester, I was faced with a difficult decision. What do I do with my little clay creations? Where do I put my pots? Do I put them on display? Obviously not. Do I hide them in my closet, proud that I made them, but not so proud that I don't want others to see them? Maybe. Or do I throw them away? As much as I hated the looks of some of my creations, I couldn't get myself to throw them away. There was some internal pull to keep them, something deep and primal that said, no, they're yours. You made them. They belong to you, so keep them but they're so, they're so ugly, but they're your ugly. You must keep them. So I kept them. I would show one to you as an illustration, but I didn't keep them forever. After all, I am an imperfect creator. Now listen again to God's word through Isaiah. We are the clay, and God is the potter. All of us are the work of your hand. This verse is a part of our larger section of scripture that we'll read today. The question looming over this entire section is this. What will God do with us when we become ugly in character? When God's people fail at their most basic task of loving God and loving neighbor, how will God respond? Will God keep us forever? Or will God throw us away? Will God, the one who brought us into existence, will he do away with us because of our moral imperfections? Or will God do something to make us beautiful once more? Before we read the scriptures, let us pray. O Lord, our potter, you are the one who put us together, but too often we find ourselves falling apart. This morning, we pray for your divine speech to string us back together again. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who convinces us that such restoration is possible. Amen. 
A reading from Isaiah, starting just before verse, just before chapter 64. Friends, listen to the word of the Lord from the book that we love. For too long, we have been like those you don't rule, like those not known by your name. If only you would tear open the heavens and come down, mountains quake before you like fire igniting brushwood or making water boil. If you would make your name known to your enemies, the nations would tremble in your presence. When you accomplished wonders beyond all our expectations, when you came down, mountains quaked before you. From ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God but you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You look after those who gladly do right. They will praise you for your ways. But... You were angry when we sinned. You, you hid yourself when we did wrong. We have all become like the unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a minstrel rag. All of us wither like a leaf. Our sins, like the wind, carry us away. No one calls on your name. No one bothers to hold on to you, for you have hidden yourself from us and have handed us over to our sin. But now... Now, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Don't rage so fiercely, Lord. Don't hold our sins against us forever, but gaze now on your people, all of us. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a wasteland. Our holy, glorious house... Where our ancestors praised you has gone up in flames. All that we treasured has become a ruin. After all this, will you hold back, Lord? Will you keep silent and torment us so terribly? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will God give up on the people God brought into existence? This is the question hovering over today's text. Will God give up on them, on us? Or will God somehow find a way to keep them and use them for his purposes? The prophet does not seem to know the answer. That's why the passage ends with two pregnant questions. After all this, after all we've been through, O God, will you now hold back? Will you keep silent and torment us so terribly? In other words, are you finally giving up on us, or is there still reason to hope? The context for these questions are provided in the first 63 chapters of Isaiah. In our text, we have some hints at the context as well. Israel, God's people, had sinned. Israel, the people God brought into existence, saved from slavery, promised the, brought to the promised land, entrusted with God's mission, and shown God's glory, this is the group of people that had sinned. They had a long history with God, and it was of God saving them and being good to them. These are the people that had sinned. 
I'm not just talking about a little white lie here and there. They had become chronically disloyal to God. Their sin had become endemic, like a virus that comes back every season. But even worse than a virus that infects the body, this virus of sin had infected their very soul. As one scholar writes, the problem, the problem here in Isaiah's day is the persistent sinning of the people and their inability to do anything about it. Isaiah diagnoses this problem a few different times in the passage we read. Chapter 63, verse 19 reads, We have behaved like those God doesn't rule, like those not known by God's name. You see, back then, normal people preferred their will to God's will. Normal people prioritized what they wanted to do over what God wanted them to do. That's how normal people behaved back then. They did what they pleased. Of course, that's how normal people behave in our own day, too. The hammer of Isaiah's judgment doesn't fall on these normal people, though. It falls on God's people who are acting normal. God's people are acting like the normal people who had never experienced God's power and salvation. God's people are acting like those who knew nothing of God's love and grace. God's people are acting God-ignorant, like a scared fish who thinks she's being hunted. Israel jumps out of the stream of God's mercy and into the stream of normal culture. As she begins to swim in this other stream, she starts behaving like everyone else. She's simply following the stream of culture. But it turns out the normal stream flows into a dump. But God had called her to streams of living water. So what is God to do? What does God's justice look like in the days of Isaiah? How does God's mercy inform God's response? To his rebellious children. The prophet Isaiah doesn't completely know, but Isaiah wants God to take something into consideration. As God deliberates about what to do, Isaiah wants God to take something into consideration. Remember, O God, that you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Cyril of Alexandria, this is a guy from the the 400s, Christian scholar, he draws this conclusion. He says, honest confession and reminding God that we sinners are still his own seems the best policy for sinners. (laughs) Honest confession and reminding God that we sinners are still his own seems the best policy for sinners. That's what Isaiah does on behalf of the people of Israel. He doesn't minimize their sin or rationalize their behavior. He owns up to it. He owns up to just how bad it is. But then he reminds God that they are still his children. So how will God respond? Before we attempt an answer, let's skip down to verse 5, because there are some more difficult words we need to hear. In verse 5, Isaiah continues to press into the wound. It's painful, but his ultimate goal is to stop the bleeding. So in verse 5, Isaiah acknowledges that God looks after those who gladly do what's right. Those who respond to God's grace with glad obedience, 
They are the ones who joyfully praise God and enjoy God's presence. It's good news, right? It is good news. However, the Israel of Isaiah's day does not fall into that camp. The result is that God was angry when they sinned, and God hid God's self when they did wrong. As we keep reading, as we, keep reading we discover that their wrongdoing was not simply a matter of a few poor choices. It was a matter of the heart. For even their good deeds were soiled with self-importance. This leads Isaiah to paint a provocative picture for us in verse 6. And I'm a little embarrassed every time I say it, but this is what Isaiah writes. We have all become like the unclean. All our righteous deeds, all the good things we do, are like a minstrel rag. Reminds me of what Jesus said about some of the religious leaders of his own day. Hypocrites, Jesus decries. You clean, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside are full of violence and pleasure-seeking. That's what Jesus said. In other words, you make yourself look good and holy to others, but deep down you are morally filthy and your motives are all wrong. Isaiah's criticism of God's people similar to Jesus' criticism in the first century. He sums up the sinful condition of God's people in verse 7. No one calls on your name, he says, and listen to this, no one bothers to hold on to you. This, my friend, is the image of a broken embrace. No one, he says, bothers to hold on to God. Remember, this is the God who created them in his image. But more than that, this is the God that rescued them from centuries of oppression. But more than that, this is the God who brought them to God's very self to establish a close relationship based on divine love. My friends, God has done the same for us. God embraces you with love. God holds on to you with real affection. God actually likes being with you. (laughs) He does. And all who put their confidence in Jesus, God binds to himself like glue. But if we're anything like the people Isaiah is talking about, we let go of God's embrace. We fail to hold on to God for very long. We treat God as a seasonal decoration, something we pull out of the box when we're in the mood. Or in the language of verse 7, sometimes we don't even bother to hold on to God anymore. We let go of God because we start to feel like the reality of God has lost all relevance for contemporary life. We are the clay, and you are our potter, Isaiah affirms. But what will God do with such broken vessels like ourselves? Or as Isaiah scholar John Oswald puts it, Can the artist simply toss aside the thing on which he lavished care and attention, into which he has put so much of himself? Can the artist simply toss us aside? What will God do with the Israel of Isaiah's day? What will God do with us? These are the questions prompted by our text for today. Before we attempt an answer, there's actually more reality that needs to set in. 
The reality is that there are real consequences to sin. This is not something a swab of neosporin and a sticky band-aid can patch up. According to God's prophet Isaiah, the consequences of sin are fatal. Verse 6. Think of, uh, think of raking leaves recently when I read this verse. Verse 6, all of us wither like a leaf. Our sins, like the wind, are carried away. In other words, the consequence of sin isn't just that we feel bad for a little while until we do something good. The consequence of sin is, isn't simply guilt. It is destruction. The more I counsel people... The more I counsel young men, specifically, whose marriages are falling apart, the more I witness the tornado-like power of sin to destroy. The more I see the power of addiction in people's lives, the more I read about the role of narcissism in leaders, in church leaders, the truer Isaiah's point feels to me. Our sins, like the wind, carry us away. They really do. They bring us to a point where we are destroyed. John Oswald puts it like this. He says, Just as the dead leaf is helpless before the wind, so the human spirit becomes captive to its sins and is no more able to choose its course than the leaf. Whether that sin is envy or greed, individualism, this fierce individualism or whatever it might be. (laughs) The human spirit becomes captive to these vices, and we are no more able to choose our course once we are in bondage than the leaf. So in the historical situation of Isaiah's time, the consequence of their collective sin was something called exile. Exile, they were, they they exited, they, uh, they were kicked out of their promised land. Israel, they were deported from the land God had given them. God had seen it all coming, and God still let it happen. Specifically, when we're talking about the history, God had allowed a group of people called the Assyrians to destroy God's people Israel, and then later the Babylonians to to bring them out of the, the promised land, to lead them to a place far from home. This was more than a military defeat. In this exile, God's promised land was decimated. God's temple was desecrated. God's people were humiliated. That's what verses 10 and 11 are all about. Isaiah lifts up the dam of his disappointment, and the grief comes rushing out. He says, Your holy cities have become a wilderness, Jerusalem a wasteland. Our holy, glorious house, he's talking about the church, (laughs) the equivalent to the church, their temple, our holy glorious house where our ancestors praised you has gone up in flames. All that we treasured has become a ruin. What do you say to God when all you have treasured has become a ruin? Isaiah laments to God when this happens in his own generation. So why did God allow all this to happen? Why did God allow the exile to happen? Isaiah's inspired interpretation is that it happened because of their sin. God did not cause it to happen. 
Sin carries its own consequences, which naturally come about unless God intervenes. Sin carries its own consequences. The natural outcome is this or that. So this time, God refuses to intervene. God stays put. God does nothing when God could have done something. And this is God's judgment. God's judgment is is withdrawing God's hand. In Isaiah's language, it is handing us over to our sin. It is God's judgment. It is simply letting things play out without getting too much involved. This is God's judgment. That's what God does in the days of Isaiah. And the result is devastating. So now the question is this. Will it last forever? Will the consequences of our sin define us forever? Will God disown us, his children? Will God throw out what God's own hands have made? These are real questions for Isaiah. Or will God do something miraculously merciful and make us beautiful once more? John Oswald frames it like this. The only question is whether God's pity for the condition of his children and his concern for his reputation might prompt him to intervene in the hearts and lives of his people, doing in them what they cannot do for themselves. That's the question. To answer this question, we must turn back the pages of Isaiah and gaze on God's revelation in chapter 53. Here in chapter 53 of Isaiah, God reveals to the prophet that there is only one way out. There is only one possible solution to the perennial problem of sin in our lives, and it is not our willpower. It's what Isaiah calls the suffering servant. According to Isaiah, There was to come a man who suffered, who knew sickness well. He would be like He'd be like one of those people who, who people were ashamed of. You'd see him on the streets and you'd look the other way. You'd laugh. You'd mock. That's what the suffering servant would be like. In a strange poetic just, justice, this man, this suffering servant, would be the answer to the problem of sin and to the question of God's mercy. But the man, we discover as we read chapter 53, The man was not sick because of his own lack of health. Verse 4 says, It was was our sickness that he carried, our suffering that he bore. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole. That's what this suffering servant did. The suffering servant that was to come in Isaiah's day, the one that Isaiah envisioned when he imagined a solution to the perennial problem of sin. This is what the suffering servant is like. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds we are healed. Like sheep we had all wandered away, Isaiah says, each going its own way, but the Lord let fall on him all our crimes. It's a strange poetic justice, a mystery. Since since sin is fatal, 
God exhausts sin of its deathly power by placing it all on the suffering servant. That's what's revealed to Isaiah. So Isaiah continues in verse 10, But the Lord wanted to crush him and to make him suffer. If his life is offered as restitution, he will see his offspring. The Lord's plans will come to fruition through him. That's what will happen when the suffering servant comes. There's something about this man, this suffering servant, that Isaiah envisions, that God reveals. There's something about this man that's more than a man. For the life that is within him is stronger than the venom of death. So we read in verse 11, After his deep anguish, he will see light, and he will be satisfied. Through his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous and will bear their guilt. This is the answer to the question revealed to Isaiah. We are the clay, God is the potter. So Isaiah wonders, what will God do with his pottery? We turn back the pages to Isaiah 53, and we see that God will keep us forever. We see that God will never throw us in the trash. We see that God is willing to do everything to make us beautiful again. This everything is why we celebrate Christmas every year. For it is God himself, in some wonderful mystery, who becomes the suffering servant in Jesus Christ. It is the eternal word made flesh who endures the full extent of his own judgment. It is the giver of life who miraculously intervenes on behalf of us little creations, the life giver choosing to die so that we might truly live. God did this for us in Jesus Christ, and all who believe this good news will never be the same again. So allow me to conclude with a little poem I wrote inspired by God's word for today. It's called The Potter's Wheel. On the potter's wheel we spin, becoming yet incomplete. On the potter's wheel we turn around the mercy seat. The potter's hands press into us, gently yet firm. The potter's hands glide over us, shaping into form. God is the potter, we are the clay, becoming yet incomplete. God is the Father, we are the clay, becoming what will one day be. Let us pray.